From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. I'm Tammy Katzoff, and in each episode of this podcast, I talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, I spoke with Tim Silvestri, class of 1991, a licensed psychologist and director of the Counseling Center at Muhlenberg College. As I do with all of these interviews, I began the conversation by asking how and when Tim became interested in his occupation. So I'd say it started in undergrad. I come from, there's plenty of either psychologists or therapists in my family. And so I tried to avoid psychology for a while, trying to (laughs) make my own way. But um, sooner or later, I just gave into it because it was, it fascinated me. And uh, I was, uh, that's here at Muhlenberg. In fact, uh, President Herring was one of my favorite teachers here. And she was a, a very young professor at the time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I graduated with a degree in psychology, went on to Lehigh, did my PhD there and did my residency at UPenn in the same program that Kate Richmond, who's a psych professor here, did her residency. A lot of counselors and, and therapists uh, and people in psychology talk about their theoretical orientation. Do you have one? You know, to throw a little research in there, there is a really good book written in 2000, Bruce Wampold. And really what what his research demonstrated is that no one theory outperforms another. And so, Mm -hmm. and that when you look at expert clinicians uh, who have been practicing their proposed theory for 20 plus years, you cannot distinguish which theoretical orientation they use by watching them practice, even though they would swear they only go by that one theory. So the theories tend to blend together and most folks are eclectic. Uh, Overall, I I would subscribe most dominantly to what's called psychodynamic, um, looking at character structure and the way you interact with the world through, I guess, kind of through your own lens, if you will. And the other part of it, which often surprises people when I first say psychodynamic, I'd say I'm heavily loaded in a science bent and applied neuroscience and uh, applied neurophysiology. And so when I look deeply at uh, neurophysiology, neuroscience and all that psychodynamic and character structure and the way that you were raised and the different interfaces you had through developmental periods. Um, and how that shapes how you interact with the world around you just makes, to me, the most sense from a neurophysiological level. So I would say I'm those two things. You wear a lot of hats. Um, you probably don't have a typical day. So can you talk about the, your various roles, both as a therapist and an administrator? Yeah. So in a small center, a director takes on a much heavier clinical load. So we're a small center. We're five full-time counselors, whereas some of my director colleagues around the country, they're managing a team of 25 to 40, even more sometimes, and they see almost no students one-on-one. So as far as I'm concerned, I definitely do a lot of individual therapy, a lot of individual sessions with students. Uh, And then I do a lot of administrative things where I'm trying to create the model that we're 
using, trying to create ways to communicate that model to students and faculty, parents, staff, administrators, and, you know, finding the most effective ways to deliver positive experiences for students. So sometimes it might be really examining what, not only promoting self-care among staff, because if staff isn't engaging in self-care, then they're probably not doing effective work with students. Most people see self-care as kind of the icing on a cake, and I view it as the the place where good work comes from. So then I might have to see, are there any numerical or behavioral indicators that self-care is happening? And if not, how can I encourage staff to raise those levels? You know, that's a much more administrative director thing, using data to to measure something and and promote the outcome of it rather than just doing something and and saying, I did that, you know, like doing individual therapy and saying, yes, I I saw five students today. This is more putting our priorities in place and then finding ways to measure them and, and operationalizing those priorities and then measuring them. So that's a big role that I'd say as a director that I do. Um, and then, uh, you know, a number of administrative tasks and serving on committees and different things like that. How has your job changed since the pandemic started, both in the way that you work and also in the things that you're talking about with your clients? You know, when, when, it, when it first started hitting us um, and we realized, oh, there could be changes ahead. Um, let alone when we moved remotely in that first week after spring break, I did what a director does, right? I, I kind of looked at various models and tried to create several that we could consider, brought some models to the team, got feedback, and, and together as a team, we crafted a, a new way of functioning. And um, eventually, we called it the uh, our consultation model and making ourselves available remotely for consultation to students. The reason we use the term consultation is because licensing boards from different states have their own rules. And basically a licensing board's job is to protect their, the public within that state. And so if you're not licensed in that state, that licensing board says you may not serve their population because you are not deemed adequate, you know, to serve that population. But we can do consultation. We can, we, we have a, a duty to offer services to students in need. Um, and there's a pretty loose definition of students in need. So it seemed to, you know, move, it seemed both, viable, it seemed effective for students, and it seemed legal to move to an online consultation model. So we quickly developed that, and that's what we've been doing ever since, is delivering a remote consultation to students, either over the phone, Zoom meetings, and and such, Google Meets. And, you know, what they're talking about is you know, a little more swayed towards instead of having a struggle with my roommate, um, it's their new roommate or their current roommates. You know, I'm struggling with my interactions with my parents. 
or my brother or sister or um, struggling with how to get work done, you know, while at home. So a lot of the same themes, interpersonal performance, mood, anxiousness, uh, just maybe with a different template, if you will. What do you see as uh, the upsides and the downsides of, of that all important keyword of uh, telemedicine? If you really look at telemed, it, it's, it is its own thing. The reason we haven't used that term at all, and really we've stayed away from any use of that term, is because if you're really to do teletherapy, telemed, you really should, you don't have to, but you should be certified. There, there are certification programs out there. It is more of a process, of more, somewhat more of an expertise. And, you know, if we're, this isn't going to happen, but if we were to have to move to fully teletherapy long term, uh, we, we would have to really shift and, and get staff trained and certified and, and all of that. And so we've maintained what we do, which is, consul, you know, consultation and to assist students on an as-needed basis. And, and that's kind of our sworn duty, if you will. For a handful of students, there's a huge upside. They don't, they, for whatever personal reason, they don't want to meet face-to-face and, and talking over the phone is better. They don't want to come to the counseling center. But I would say that's, that's a, not a large portion of students many or most students are are perfectly fine coming in and would strongly prefer a face-to-face meeting. So for a handful of students, this has been great. They, they can go for a walk, talk on the phone with a therapist and, and talk about life. Um, but for most students, I would say there's a huge downside. Um, and at a, as a college population, there's less of an upside too, because one, our services, they already paid for. So, you know, I can't say they're free, but, you know, for them in each session, it's free. They paid for it through their uh, uh, health and wellness fee. And we're accessible because we're, you know, within a, a block or two. So telemedicine is really beneficial in remote populations when they would have to travel miles and miles to get to your services bad weather, you know, Alaska telemed would be essential, right? You, you get bad weather and you might not be able to leave for a month, uh, you know, but Muhlenberg, the upside isn't as great. The downside is significant in that the students want to meet face to face. They want to see their counselor. They have a relationship and they want to sit down in an office and chat. Because I'm trained as a counselor, I know a little bit about this stuff. But I do know that the importance of and the use of college counseling centers is on the rise. You probably get asked this a lot, but why do you think that is? So there's probably a lot of reasons. I will say proudly that our team, we think, boasts probably one of the highest, if not the highest utilization rate. I would match up to anyone in the country. We were probably looking at north of a 26% utilization rate, which is extremely high. And some of the reasons for that, for such a high rate at Muhlenberg, is one, we don't limit our services. So we uh, 
we call it customized care. We don't have session limits or anything like that. We have a diverse staff, which is critical to meet the needs of a diverse population. Uh, and so um, that's going to push up utilization rates for a great reason. And we've been well supported by the faculty, by the board and, and all. So for that reason, we boast a very high utilization for some of those reasons. Um, utilization rates are going up. You know, if you read the headlines, I think they are extremely misleading. Diagnoses are up, things like that. Well, if you visit a professional and you're going to use insurance, you have to get a diagnosis. So saying diagnoses are going up is just saying utilization rates are going up. It's not necessarily saying people are getting worse. So let's be careful of that kind of stuff because I could put forward ample evidence to say our students are in much worse shape mental health wise than they've ever been. But I think that's a straw man, you know, argument. You can't just go by diagnostic rates. Therapy has become more and more widely accepted. The uh, stigma has really been decimated. So mm -hmm. there's not a ton of stigma about it. A lot of therapists partially do coaching and different things, you know, performance coaching and, and all. So there's just not a lot of stigma around stuff. Some of the students I meet with in a, in a week, they might not have any issues. They just want to talk performance and how to be an All-American uh, or how to, you know, go to MIT for grad school. And they've, they've, they're, them and their families have accessed therapeutic services early on. So they've, they are familiar with it. So two things keep people out of therapy. Let's, let's flip that question. What keeps people out of therapy? Mm. The research is that stigma is half of it. And the other half is, I don't believe that would work. In other words, I'm struggling, but what would go and talking to a stranger do for me? Mm. Or I know what I need to do. I'm struggling, but I know what I need to do. I need to get up tomorrow and actually do my work. And then they don't because they are in a, a funk. And when you're in a funk, you can't just get up and do your work. But what would going and talking to a stranger do for me? I just have to do my work. Um, there's no problem. I, there's no solution I need. I already know the solution. And so people who have uh, experienced therapy in the past and they felt benefited by it, that removes that number two. It removes, it doesn't work because they've experienced that it does. And the research is it's highly efficacious. And stigma has dropped precipitously through, through the past couple of decades. So we've removed that barrier too. So I think the two barriers that were there are no longer as big of a player, which is driving up utilization rate. Mm. That would be my main hypothesis. As an administrator, what do you see as the most rewarding parts of your job? And what do you see as the most challenging parts of your job? If, if those two things are in fact different. You know, rewarding working with a team and together, and you don't have to be a director to say this answer, working with a team and uh, fulfilling a mission and doing it well, I think is, is huge. And that goes for, again, whether you're director or not. I think uh, the challenges, it's, it's hard. I mean, I've studied leadership most of my career and performance and excellence and all these type of things. And boy, when I took the director position, it was like getting whacked in the head by a two by four. You know, it's, it's one thing to study this stuff. It's another thing to actually direct. And 
it's not an easy gig. And in fact, director positions around the country are getting harder and harder to fill because people just don't want to do it. It's just hard. You know, there's a saying that you can kick a can and uh, you can, you know, through physics, exactly pinpoint where it's going to land. You can kick a human and you have no idea the response you're going to get, you know, and so directing people is, is not an easy thing. And I, I have utmost respect for people who direct people well, because it's not easy. They're going to, they're going to challenge you. They're going to have opinions and rightly so they should. And, you know, you could be all ears all you want. You could have an open door policy all you want, but um, at the end of the day, you're, you're being challenged to do your job well and um, as well you should be. So it's not easy work, um, but it's highly rewarding watching a team work together well. I just think that the, the rewards aren't just for directors. I think that's just awesome being part of a team. I wouldn't trade that in for anything. So you've been in the mental health field a while, a little while. Um, you've probably seen some changes. So can you talk about the major changes that you have seen in, in the helping professions and then future trends that you foresee that you're going to have to be dealing with? I'm an old dog now, so I've been in this 25 years. I, we'd have to do a, a separate show on the trends and the changes because there's, there's been a lot. I mean, prior to 2000, oh, um, dang it, my, my brain's not working today. I'm blanking on her name. But she discovered in a lab in Princeton, or she proved, we, we, there was hints of this, but she proved that neurogenesis actually exists, that neurons get created. Before, prior to 2000, people believed neurogenesis didn't happen. I mean, so changes have been enormous in this field. I'll highlight one, maybe two. Uh, and, and I think um, uh, an article recently came out in a, in a highly influential journal that basically said psychiatric uh, and psychological diagnoses have no, literally, quote, no scientific validity whatsoever. And wow, you know, yeah. And so we've been slowly heading towards the dismantling of the way we used to look at categorical diagnoses. And I think we will continue as a field to reshape that. I think when we look at diagnoses, we can say suffering is occurring. And we try to pinpoint versions of that suffering. And when we do, it really fails the rigor of science. But that's not to negate that suffering's occurring by saying that diagnoses have no scientific validity. The use of the categories and a symptoms-based taxonomy that really fails the rigor of science. So are you not a fan of the, of the DSM? Well, you know, if, if I'm just curating it for the audience, I'd have to say that the current scientific findings are that it has no validity whatsoever. Um, it's a symptoms-based diagnosis. And so if you walked into your doctor and you said, I have a sore throat, and you said, what's it caused by? And he said, well, it's, you know, it's associated with pain in your throat. 
and scratchiness in your throat. And so it's a sore throat. And you said, well, but I just told you that, you know, it's a cyclical argument. It's a symptoms based argument. You want to pinpoint what is the cause of that. And I think we do have good research out there that is highlighting what the causes are. I just don't think we've applied baseline neurophysiology to explain it. And we already have all the information to explain it well. It's just not part of the current taxonomy. And so you can see things shifting towards that. I'd say that that you it's probably an unfair answer because you asked me what has been the biggest change. And I'm kind of answering a different question, which is what will be the biggest change? And over the next 20 years, you will see the current research that we already know broadly explain suffering and do it well. So anxiety and depression and all these type of things. We, ha- we know what this is. We know what causes these things. Uh, we, we 100% do. It just most clinicians don't know. And that's a shame. But we're, we're getting there. We're slowly getting there. So how will that affect treatment? My favorite saying from a mechanic friend of mine is if you don't know how the machine works, you can't fix it. And he's frequently frustrated with mechanics who just try to fix things, but they don't really know how that particular machine works. And so I would p- apply the same thing is once you know how the machine works, you, you can fix it. Uh, let me give you uh, an example. So um, someone goes through a breakup what they're going to readily experience in the next two weeks is a dramatic rise in cortisol levels throughout the entire day that will diminish levels of melatonin that should be starting to kick in, in, in the evening, helping you get a robust and, and, uh, really, uh, deep sleep, no melatonin, no deep sleep, too much cortisol waking up throughout the night. You wake up feeling exhausted, like you didn't sleep at all. Now, now you have less energy. So you do less, you perform less well, making you feel badly about yourself, more cortisol on and on, right? Your appetite drops, you start eating high fat, high carb foods, or you don't eat at all. And, you know, I call that a cortisol spiral. If you can know that, okay, something just happened, I just didn't do well in an exam or I had a breakup or something hit me, then, and I'm about to go into a cortisol spiral, you can minimize it uh, dramatically. Um, For example, when your adrenal gland spits out cortisol, it also dumps all your vitamin C. And so you can megadose, vitamin C doesn't help with the common cold, that's a myth, but um, it actually does help well with the cortisol spiral. So by doing a mega dose, a thousand milligrams of vitamin C, and I prefer to tell people to do it early evening around four o'clock, um, that it can lower your cortisol levels, bring back some of that melatonin and get a more robust sleep. People also take melatonin, but the problem is that doesn't reduce the cortisol. And so you just have a battle going on. So, you know, even something simple as a mechanics of a vitamin C megadose is an enormously helpful anecdote to this stuff. That doesn't mean that's the solution. It just means if you understand how the machinery works, you can fix it. And I think that is the future where science... therapists will be extremely technically savvy on the body and how, how their neurophysiology works and therefore how to fix it. And that will be true of trauma, 
PTSD, all of these things. We know this stuff, addictions, um, why impulses happen, why we can tell ourselves not to do something and we do it anyway, or why we tell ourselves to do something and we don't do it. Um, why those frustrating things happen. There's all great and well-known explanations for those things. And we just have to get the science in clinicians' hands so they can use it. Hmm. Wow. So much to think about for the Muhlenberg student or alum or anyone else who happens to be listening who wants to eventually do what you do. What words of advice would you give them? And what did you wish you knew before that you know now that makes your job easier? I'm going to address that directly to a specific avatar. There's people out there who have always been fascinated with psychology and they feel like, well, I'm too old now, or I don't know anything about psychology, or I didn't study at undergrad, or I didn't even go to college. And I just have this fascination. And so they feel like they're not worthy of pursuing it for whatever reason. And I'm going to address that person specifically because everyone else is in the system and really they just have to kind of go jump through all the hoops and do what people tell them to do and graduate with degrees and move on. For the other folks, though, I would say it, it really doesn't matter whether you know anything about the thing or not. Pick one thing make it an aspiration and then set out a time variable that it will take to achieve that aspiration. And so if your favorite thing on the planet is shark week and you would love to be a marine biologist whose work is highlighted on shark week, then go and be a marine biologist whose work is highlighted on shark week. But if you know nothing about marine biology, that's going to take a six year commitment. And the sooner you start that commitment, the sooner your research makes it on Shark Week. Mm -hmm. And same with psychology. If you've never studied it, it might take three years, five years, or eight years. But you cannot get to the eighth year if you don't start it. And so I would just say, pick an aspiration. Pick something that is just wow, is cool, is amazing, fascinates you. Forget about finding your passion. Passion is what comes at, as a result of all this. Up front, is something that just fascinates you or is so cool that you just love it. And so think of something that you're fascinated by that is more fascinating than anything else. Pick a time variable to pursue it based on any kind of expertise you have on it and commit to the time frame, and you will accomplish it. This episode of 2400 Chew was produced by me, Tammy Katzoff, Associate Director of the Muhlenberg College Career Center. It was recorded remotely and engineered by Paul Kremposky at the studios of WMUH, Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band.